The reading is taken from um, John chapter 18, um, verses 28, and it's on page 1087 in your church Bibles. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the, place, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of, of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in the rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They, clo they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priest and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate asked. Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. 
We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray. Lord, as we approach Good Friday, we, we look at your encounter with Pontius Pilate. We look at a man who, as he was preparing to execute you, was offered the truth and was offered the opportunity to turn to the true king. Help us to see this. Help us to see how your hand extended to someone like that is also extended to us. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. If you were with us this morning, then the Bible passage that was read to us may sound slightly familiar. And that's because Clive preached on the equivalent account from Mark's Gospel at our 10 a.m. service as part of the run-up to Easter. Now, tonight's version, however, is slightly different. As most of you know, we've been looking on Sunday evenings at something called Encounters with Jesus over the last few weeks. And tonight, we look at his encounter with one of the most notorious individuals in the Bible, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who authorized Jesus' execution. Now, we obviously live in a very secular world, right? It goes without saying. And even so, it's probably fair to say that anyone who has some awareness of who Jesus was also has some awareness of who Pilate was. But what few people know is that Pilate had something in common with another very, very important character that we all know very well, Humpty Dumpty. Now, I can see you're struggling to make the connection. Please stop worrying about it. We'll come back to it a little bit later. It's probably not what you think. Palestine was under Roman rule during Jesus' time on earth, but there were actually three political authorities in place at the time. First, there was Herod Antipas, and Herod was a Jewish ruler. He was something like a very limited puppet king under the authority of the Romans. He just controlled part of the region. Secondly, there was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, and they had religious and legal authority over the people. And then lastly, there was the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate oversaw Rome's military presence in Palestine. He was the most powerful of the three. He was the one who answered directly to the emperor in Rome, and it's important to note that he was the one that could access directly and bring military might down on Judea. However, the other two could and sometimes did appeal directly to the emperor in Rome bypassing Pilate under the right circumstances. So we have these three authorities in the land. We have Herod, we have the Sanhedrin, and we have Pilate, the governor. Sometimes in conflict, sometimes in alignment, each with their own agenda, each wanting to exercise as much power and control over the people as they possibly could. And Jesus, as we'll see, is brought before each of these after his arrest and on his way to being condemned to crucifixion. But before we get to that, let me tell you a little bit about Pontius Pilate. Now, we'll say his name at least a few times a month when we recite the creed, don't we? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. But we know a fair amount about, fair amount about him from 
from sources outside of the Bible. Pilate actually wasn't born in Italy at all. He wasn't a born citizen of Rome. He was Spanish. He was born in Seville, and he ended up in the army of a Roman general called Germanicus. And when the conflict he was involved in settled down, he ended up going to Rome, and he married a lady by the name of Claudia Procula, who was the granddaughter of the Emperor Augustus. Very wise move, politically. They were a horrible family, but it was obviously a step up for Pilate. And because of that, he was appointed as the governor of Judea which was a post that he held for about 11 years, from A.D. 26 to A.D. 37. Now, Judea wasn't what you might call a plum appointment because the Jews were extremely difficult people to work with, very difficult to manage. But then again, he wasn't the most pleasant of characters either, so many people probably thought they were a match made in heaven, which they likely were. He was rash, he was petty, he was irrational, and sometimes he was the direct cause of civil conflict in the area in Judea. There were other governors who frankly could do a much better job. Now, I've given you this background, not to bore you, and not because it's just vaguely interesting, but because it helps to explain why Pilate was so weak and so pliable, but have so much power when it came to bowing to the clamoring of a crowd to crucify a man he declared as innocent three times. He was under a lot of political pressure. The last thing Pilate wanted was more negative comments to go from the area in which he, was, he had an oversight up to Rome. Now you probably want to know what he had in common with Humpty Dumpty. I'll tell you later. <laughs> Just hang in there. I can see the suspense is killing you. Um, let's just briefly look at the passage. And what we'll do is we'll step back from the passage and just get a bird's eye view of what's actually going on here because there's a lot happening. And each of the Gospels gives us a different account, a different camera view, as it were, of the same scene. So firstly, the first event we have is that in John 18, 1 to 11, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. We won't spend much time looking at it, but in those verses, John records the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, and he records how he was arrested by Roman soldiers and Jewish religious leaders. So he says a detachment of soldiers, that's Pilate's Roman soldiers, and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees came and arrested him. He's arrested, he's tied up, the disciples run off, He's taken to face the Jewish ruling authorities, the high priest. And there he faces eventually the Sanhedrin. And he's tried and condemned by the Sanhedrin. And that happens actually in two stages. There's kind of two parts to, to that particular trial. First, he's questioned by Annas. And Annas was a high priest until he was unseated by the Romans, which was illegal under Jewish law because a high priest was a high priest for life. But Annas held a lot of sway over the high priestly dynasty, if you will. And so his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is appointed as high priest over the area. And still, therefore, he has control. So Jesus is sent by Annas to Caiaphas to face him and the Sanhedrin in the first formal trial. And here's what should have happened. 
The Sanhedrin typically met for their legal judgments in a place called the Chamber of Hewn Stone, which was in the palace. There were 71 men in the Sanhedrin, and they were overseen by the high priest. He was the guy who presided over the proceedings. They could pass any judgment on the people found guilty of breaking the law except for death. Only the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, could pass a judgment of death, especially one by crucifixion, and have it carried out. Now, people were killed in other ways, as we know, right? John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. Stephen was stoned by a mob. So those things happened, but typically they were a bit by exception, and they were under the tolerated view of the Romans. To try and overrule what the Romans did could cause all manner of difficulties. Now, the court proceedings were typically recorded by at least two clerks, and any testimony relating to a capital offense needed two corroborating and consistent witnesses. That's what should have happened. But that's not what did happen. The Sanhedrin's trial of Jesus was a complete and utter farce for the following reasons. Firstly, it happened at night under cover of darkness. That was illegal under Jewish law. Trials were required to be done in the daylight, not in secret. Secondly, by Jewish law, no trial could be held on a Sabbath or a feast day or on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day, which is when this took place. So that regulation was broken. Thirdly, as Matthew records almost in passing, this trial happens at the high priest's home, not the chamber of hewn stone. Decidedly iffy, to say the least. Fourth, in a capital conviction, Jewish law required the Sanhedrin to actually meet again the following day to ratify the judgment and to prevent any rash decisions. Didn't happen. And finally, as I mentioned before, the testimony of two eyewitnesses has to, had to agree, which they didn't. As Mark says, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin are looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. The trial by the Sanhedrin was a farce. It was a travesty. We don't have time to look at what then happened in detail, but it's enough to know that they found a reason by which they could kill him. Now, there's a lot going on here. So Peter has denied Christ during this trial by the Sanhedrin. He's been out in the courtyard, standing at the fire, denying Christ three times. It's early morning. They cart Jesus off to see Pontius Pilate because they want him crucified. Not far away, Judas is struck with remorse, tries to return the 30 coins, and ends up committing suicide. Our interest today, however, is in the dialogue that Jesus has with the Roman governor, with Pontius Pilate. And that happens in two stages again. It happens in John 18, verse 28 to 40, and then it happened, the second phase happens in John 19. And John doesn't record it, but in between the two, Pilate sends Christ off to Herod to try and get rid of the problem. We read about that in Luke 23. But our focus is on those two encounters. And in those encounters, Pilate is faced firstly with Jesus, the King of Truth, in chapter 18, and secondly with Jesus, the, foreign, the Sovereign King, in chapter 19. The King of Truth and the Sovereign King. So firstly, the King of Truth. 
chapter 18, verses 28 to 40. So reading from verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning. And to avoid, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So they're all very fussy about personal inconvenience and eating the Passover, but they're very happy with a completely shambles of a trial. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you weren't a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. So we know that the Roman soldiers went to arrest Jesus, so Pilate must have been well aware of what was going on. The Jewish rulers assume that they will have Pilate's unequivocal support and that he'll just underwrite the decision to have Jesus killed. That's been reached by the Sanhedrin. But they're taken aback in verse 29 when they arrive and he says, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they kind of go all, um, he's a criminal, that's why we're here, you know. Pretty pathetic. And he gives them short shrift and he says, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And then the truth comes out and they say, But we're not allowed to execute him. And Pilate knows what's going on. You know, we're not that worried about the niceties of the law, Pilate. We just want him dead. He's too much of a threat to our authority. He's got thousands of people starting to support him, and basically they're rebelling against what we're telling them to do. We want this guy out of the way. Pilate, on the other hand, is saying, if you want to execute him, you're going to have to give me a very good reason for doing so. He's saying that not because he's worried about being a just and upright governor. He's saying that for two reasons. Firstly, he doesn't want anything happen, happening to cause a disturbance, which then goes back to Rome. Secondly, he wants to make his authority clear. He wants to make the Jews understand, you know, I'm in charge here and I want you to know it. That's why he says, does what he does. But he knew what the accusation was. He knew they were trying to get Pilate to convince Christ as being an insurrectionist, of being a military leader who was stirring up the people to overthrow the Romans. And for that, the capital punishment would have been applied by the Romans. That's what they were trying to do. So in verse 33, Pilate goes inside the palace, away from the Jewish leaders. He takes Christ inside the palace and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Christ says to him, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Now notice what just happened. Firstly, Jesus didn't want to answer Pilate's question with a simple yes or no because he wanted Pilate to be clear about the fact that yes, he is the king, but no, he's not a political king. He's not interested in establishing a political and a military kingdom in Judea. He wanted to open up the discussion. That's the first thing to notice in that response of his. The second thing to notice is that he wanted to deal with Pilate the man, not Pilate the governor. So suddenly this great authority in Judea, the Roman governor acting on behalf of the emperor, finds that he's being questioned. He finds he's on the defensive, and he finds that he's being pushed to stop and think about his motives. He's being examined by Christ, and the one interrogating now becomes the one interrogated. Is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? And it's really not that different with us either, is it? 
someone here may well be in a situation where you're examining the claims of Christ and you're thinking about whether his claims are true, like something like what Pilate did. And that's a good thing to do. That's a thing you're to be encouraged to do. It's a thing that if you're genuinely doing, you can be sure that the questions will be answered. But you need to also realize that actually you're not sitting in judgment of Christ. He's sitting in judgment of you. He's the one asking the questions. He's the one asking you, where do you stand? Just like with Pilate. The dialogue goes on. Verse 35. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. Jesus makes it clear to Pilate, yes, he's a king. And he makes it clear, yes, I'm building a kingdom. But it's not a physical kingdom. Now notice how he describes this kingdom in verse 37. It's jarring. He doesn't say, I came into the world to fulfill the law, which is what he said on another occasion. He doesn't say, I came into the world in my father's name, which is what he'd said previously to the religious leaders. He says, in answer to the question asked by Pilate about whether he's a king, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, in my lifetime, <clears throat> we've seen, which is 50-ish years, um, We've seen a complete collapse in society's confidence that there is such a thing as truth, right? You go on Facebook, read a, read, a tw- read a Twitter feed, go old school and pick up a thing called a newspaper, and you soon realize that truth today is a very relative thing. It's regarded as something which is in the eye of the beholder, like beauty. In 1962, Lewis Carroll, seeing what was coming in terms of relativity, and truth, and a postmodern view, wrote a book called Through the Looking Glass, in which Humpty Dumpty says this to Alice. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. When I make a word like impenetrability, do a lot of work like that, said Humpty Dumpty, I always pay it extra. That's what Pontius Pilate and Humpty Dumpty had in common. They both had a jaundiced view of the truth. They both believed that words can be made to mean whatever we want them to mean. They both believed that the truth was secondary to their purposes, to what they wanted to achieve, and that it was perfectly okay to sacrifice the truth on the altar of their objectives and on what they wanted to do. That's what Hampty and Pilate had in common. Then in 1968, just a few years later, Francis Schaeffer wrote a superb book entitled Escape from Reason. And in it, Schaeffer said this, 
It is an important principle to remember that the biblical presentation is that though we do not have exhaustive truth, we have from the Bible what I term true truth. In this way we know true truth about God, true truth about man, and something truly about nature. Schaefer was right. Despite what Humpty Dumpty, Pontius Pilate, and what the world tells us today, there is such a thing as true truth, as absolute truth. And it's a truth which Jesus came into the world to testify to. It's a truth that he came to reveal, that he came to, made no, to be made known. It's not a truth that was discovered. It's a truth that was revealed from outside of humanity. It's what God, it's what Isaiah it's the truth about God, whom Isaiah calls the God of truth. So turn back a few pages to John 16 and look at verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. What does he mean by all truth? He means truth about God. He means truth about God's eternal kingdom. He means truth about the world. He means truth about us, about you, and about me. And it's this Jesus Christ, God made flesh, the way, the truth, and the life, who as a gracious, merciful king came into the world to testify to the truth, who turns to Pilate and says, in effect, come to me if you want to know the truth. But sadly, as John recalls, ironically, Pilate, facing the truth, turns away with cynicism and bitterness, and he says, what is truth? And he walks away. And then in verse 38, with this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion, and we read elsewhere that Barabbas was guilty of far more than just that. Pilate recognizes that Jesus isn't trying to create a political movement, and he rightly concludes Jesus is innocent, and he tries for the first time to free him in front of the crowd. And of course, he has a little dig at the Jews at the same time, because that's how he is. And he says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And this is the tipping point, by the way. Pilate, by Roman law, could have released Jesus immediately, turned to the Jewish rulers and said, get lost. And he could have let him go at that point. But he didn't. Instead, he sends him off to Herod, hoping to get rid of the problem because he hears that he was in Galilee. John doesn't record this. Jesus refuses to play the game. He stands in front of Herod and he says nothing. Consequently, Herod ridicules him, he beats him even further, he sends him straight back to Pilate. And we come to the final scene in our next section, Pilate and the Sovereign King, chapter 19. Now, Pilate's still trying to get these Jewish rulers to accept his judgment. And at the same time, he's mocking Christ and the rulers, so he has Jesus dressed in a purple crown, in a purple robe, I beg your pardon, and a crown of thorns is shoved on his head, 12-inch long thorns, and he has him flogged. Now, this, by the way, was probably the first of two floggings that Jesus was subject to. The Romans had three types of floggings, which have names I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to try. The first was a normal, intense whipping. The third 
which was the worst, was an intense scourging. And it was with a whip which had pieces of bone and metal built into it, which would shred a person's back, would expose bone and organs, and would sometimes result in death, and typically was reserved for just before crucifixion. That was the second whipping that Christ would have, which is recorded by the other gospel writers. So Pilate here brings Jesus after this first whipping in a pathetic, sorry, beaten, bloody state, and he says mockingly to them, here is the man, and he's hoping that they will be satisfied with this punishment. But the Jewish rulers will have none of it. And they just, in verse 6, insist and shout, crucify, crucify. And Pilate, for the second time, says, he's innocent. I find no basis for a charge against him. And for the second time, he has the opportunity to do the right thing. But it's getting more and more difficult now. Verse 7, the Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. He knew Jesus was from Galilee. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. What did Pilate fear? Why was he even more afraid, as it says in verse 8, when they said that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God? Was it that he was getting worried about the crowd? It's actually unlikely. If you look at how he talks to the crowd before and after, then there's no fear there, firstly. Secondly, if you look at the question he asks Christ as soon as he takes him inside, it's not consistent with him being afraid of the crowd. The question doesn't tie up. What seems a lot more likely is that he still had Jesus' previous comments about the truth running through his mind about Jesus and his kingdom being of the truth. And he's possibly thinking to himself, if this man is the son of God, then I have a problem. Whatever son of God may mean, because Pilate was a very superstitious man. So he takes Jesus back inside the palace again, away from the crowd, and he says, in effect, tell me the truth, ironically. Where are you from? Who are you? And Jesus refuses to answer. He said, enough. So Pilate does that kind of, I'm the Roman governor thing, and he tries to flex his muscles, and he tries to frighten Jesus with his power, and Jesus turns and looks at him, and in response, he just puts him in his place, and he says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And in that brief statement, Jesus is telling Pilate two things. Firstly, Pilate, yes, you do have authority. Yes, you can decide to crucify me or not. Yes, you carry the burden of making a right judgment or a wrong judgment, a judgment following a wicked heart and of being a slave to public pressure. That is the first thing. But the second thing, Pilate, is that you only have delegated authority. You are clay in my Father's hands. This has been ordained from the foundation of the world. This was predicted by me. This is what I've been working towards. And so John, in verse 32, writes... This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. This is one of, if not the, most poignant example of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility both being true. 
of a situation where God works in and through the actions of evil men to accomplish his purposes, to achieve what he intends to achieve. Pilate's intention was wicked, and he'll be held accountable for that. He will stand in front of Christ on the seat of judgment, and he will have to answer for his actions. But God's sovereignty used his actions to carry out the greatest act of mercy and grace the world has ever seen. Give you another example. Think of when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. That was evil. It was wrong. But God uses Joseph to save those brothers and their families from famine decades later. And so Joseph, confronting his brothers, says in Genesis 50, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's massively comforting for a believer, isn't it? When you're facing difficulty. It's difficult to understand, it's, but it's also incredibly assuring. Not even the worst acts of evil men fall outside of God's purposes, outside of his sovereign purpose. He doesn't cause the evil. He doesn't commit the evil. But certainly he uses it, and he uses it to our good, and he uses it and allows it to happen. Even the most horrendous of moments like this one. He uses it for good for the salvation of millions. It's massively encouraging for the Christian. But again, Pilate doesn't see that he's encountered a king. He's encountered a sovereign king. And Jesus goes on to enforce the truth even further when he says in verse 11, therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. We don't know who Jesus was referring to when he said that. It could have been Judas, Annas, Caiaphas, probably Caiaphas, because he was the one who orchestrated the whole thing. We don't really know. But in closing, from verse 12, from then on Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he who brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate said? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This was the ultimate betrayal of God by the ruling class of the Jews. Pilate presents Jesus to the Jews as their king, albeit mockingly. When they demand his death again, Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? And they say yes. They reject God as their king. They forget that they were a theocracy. They deny Christ and they crucify him. So Pontius Pilate was an unbeliever, just like all of us once were, possibly some still are. And he came face to face with the king of truth who invited him to know the truth, but he declined. And he came face to face with the sovereign king who invited him to bow his knee to a higher authority, but he declined. And the question is, for you, if you're not a Christian, what will you do? Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. We thank you and we, and we praise you that you are our sovereign king of truth. Thank you for 
coming to reveal the truth about you, about our world, about, about us. But thank you above all, Lord Jesus, that you accomplished what you did, that you secured our salvation by subjecting yourself to the evil of men, and that because of your sacrifice, we can find out not only the truth, but we can have peace with God our Father. We thank you for this in your name and in your glory and honor. Amen.